0: You were back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. It's back-to-school time, and this morning we heard from Phil Bossert, who heads the Hawaii Association of Independent Schools. He met with the heads of schools across the state last week and has this overview.
1: So we have 120 schools, and of them, 102 of those schools are members of Hais. And so um, because there were so many different things happening, we have created a round table, so a Zoom meeting that's just wide open for the heads of school to talk with each other. Um, and we did that in April and May quite a few times, uh, but then we stopped it during um, June and July. And uh, so last week was the first time we've done it again
0: when we touch bases with a couple of headmasters across the state everybody was encouraged because our numbers were down but obviously things have changed and there's a surge so wh- what's the snapshot with a lot of the larger private schools now
1: well the larger private schools Punahou, Yolani mid-pacific kamehameha and then add in la jardin and um, island-pacific and st. Andrews st. Louis um, they all are starting out um, with distance learning Uh, they were all set to all open face to face but then last week after the numbers hit 300 and above they all decided to switch at least initially for the first two four weeks to a uh, distance learning mode Some of them are having like one or two days to have the kids come in and learn the new apps and and pick up their iPads and stuff like that. But basically it will be online for the first two to four weeks, and then we'll take another read. Some of our smaller schools opened two weeks ago or last week. They reported in that meeting that things were going well. The kids were used to wearing the masks and staying apart and washing their hands, and so they were not planning to close and go back to distance learning as long as things were working well. So sort of do have a mix of some of the smaller schools that maybe because of their size uh, have a little more flexibility are able to stay open, Uh, whereas the larger schools that are dealing with thousands of kids, I think, are taking the safer route of starting in remote
0: And I know the idea was to be able to manage, you know, your bubble, minimize contact with lots of kids and and just keep the interaction to a small group. I believe in some schools they had some positives, I think, on the first day. Yes,
1: Sacred Hearts had a positive, and um, several weeks ago a coach at Iolani had a positive. Uh, They both had opening plans that included what to do in that case, and they implemented them, so uh the reports came uh, in, in the meeting with all the heads of school the uh, dr schrader at sacred hearts described exactly what happened and it went like clockwork he said so i think all of our schools have a plan what happens if. <laughs>
0: and I think really we're all trying to share what we know or what we don't know, you know, what the mistakes were, how to prevent problems. But it, it seems like those schools were, were pretty straight up and, and were willing to disclose information. You know, we're, I think, with some of the public schools, there's a concern about privacy.
1: I think the privacy issue, to the extent that it's medical, I mean, uh, you can't share that type of information. But um, the schools are basically saying, you know, if someone gets sick, then they will have to stay home, and, uh, and it will be known that that school had that instance. I think that's part of the plan so that it gives parents the information they need in case they say, okay, well, for the next week I'm going to keep my kid at home since there was something. Or, and then in the case of a, uh, an outbreak in a, a class, say one student tests positive, then most cases all the whole class um, will be pulled out and asked to quarantine at home for 2 weeks so that but not the whole school
0: the case would be then also a teacher tested positive
1: yes exactly
0: is there any pushback from teachers who might be just nervous about the face to face when that does happen
1: absolutely yeah I, most of the heads reported that they did have some teachers who were worried. they Either they had their own underlying health conditions or they had uh, people at home who had uh, problems that they did not want to infect. And so all of the schools have tried to work out something for that teacher to teach from home. And then they've hired, in some cases, a proctor to be the if, when and if they are uh, open for face-to-face learning, they will hire a proctor's so an adult would be in the classroom, and then the teacher would teach remotely or lecture remotely and give the assignments and the like.
0: So the proctor, you're talking like a substitute teacher? Uh, uh,
1: yeah, except the proctor, would it's like proctoring an exam. It's just that person doesn't have to teach. So it can just be uh, an adult, or in some cases the school said they would just have someone from their finance office go into the classroom and, and work on their work in the classroom just to make sure the students are paying attention to the teacher.
0: And how do the private schools handle substitute teachers? Uh,
1: all of them have lists. I mean, I would say the bigger schools all have sort of standard lists for each of their subject areas that they call on. But there are three, two or three substitute teacher companies in town, like Hawaii Employment and uh, Kelly Services, and uh, I think there's one more. So they just... Have contracts with those companies. In many cases, those companies have lists of teachers that have already taught at those schools, so they know that so-and-so is preferred for teaching high school English or something.
0: Most schools don't have, but aren't there a couple schools that have faculty unions?
1: Uh, Mid-Pacific has a faculty union, and I guess KS does have, uh, I don't know if they're all unionized or just part of their employees are unionized, but I think it's only those two. I'm sure that um, in both of those cases, the union leaders were brought into the discussion. So I haven't heard of any like strikes or anything people saying as a whole that they're going to walk out. I think what was clear uh, that everybody, all the heads were reporting that everybody really does want to go back to -to face-to-face school. I mean, that the kids miss their friends and and, and the teachers miss the interaction with the students. It's just entirely different experience being online, and, and, you, and you don't want to have either the teachers or the kids sitting in front of a Zoom call for six hours a day. So, And most of the work that was done over the summer by the schools, not only in terms of the cleaning and the sanitizing and the, the rules and for interaction, but also the teachers working together to agree upon a certain set of applications that everybody would use so that students don't get confused from jumping from app to app as they switch classes. That work was there, and a lot of professional development training was undertaken. So that the quality of the distance learning that's going to occur this fall will be much higher than the quality that happened in March when everybody had to pivot on a few days' notice.
0: Are you having any issues with wireless in some of the remote areas on the neighbor islands?
1: There are some issues. I'm part of a broadband Huey uh, group of about 70 people uh, in the state from business and education trying to deal with that issue. I mean, not only lack of wireless, but in some cases you've got homeless kids that don't have an address or electricity, much less wireless. So you do have some issues. But no one has reported, none, none of our private schools at least, has reported that they have not been able to reach their students. Now, it is true that some of the schools, the heads of school reported that for those students who didn't have wireless, they worked out a weekly drop-off of a packet. The teacher takes the packet to the kid's house and picks up the, the results of the packet from the the uh, previous week and, uh, and, and then hopefully uses a telephone call or something to talk with a student. So there is some issue in a few
0: places. That was Phil Bossert, head of the Hawaii Association of Independent Schools, talking about how private schools are doing. In addition to Sacred Hearts and Iolani, Kamehameha Schools also saw positive COVID cases. Uh, KSBE's Hawaii campus had one student, and Maui saw two employees. We will be right back with more education news. For our reality check today we now turn to Honolulu Civil Beat as it examines the shortcomings of distance learning across the public schools education writer Suman Lee joins us good morning good morning so you really got a good kind of overview on the situation I, I know DOE had tried to get laptops in the hands of students but laptops aren't the whole picture
2: Yeah, yeah. So so just to kind of frame this issue, today is, of course, the first day of school for the public school kids in Hawaii. And, um, you know, many, if not most of them, are going to be using distance learning to kick off at least the first month of the school year. So the question is, how many of them have a computer to use at home? And not only that, how many of them have reliable Internet so they can log in and meet their teachers in a, a virtual setting? Um, so the story aimed to sort of answer the question of, are we any better now than when we, when we were back five, six months ago when we first pivoted to online learning? As far as knowing how many kids are equipped with the proper equipment, and if not, how many more need such supplies, and what is the state doing to get those devices and internet connectivity into the hands of those students, who, as we know, are mostly high-need students. So those from, you know, low-income households or those who um, need multiple devices per household member. So, you know, these are open questions, and I don't know if we know any better now than we did back then.
0: Well, you know, I know one of the uh, pictures that you have uh, with your story, you know, there's a, a sign that says, Miss Chromebook Pickup, <laughs> <laughs> right? You got your laptop yet? Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's uh, that's a shot taken by our photographer, Corey Lum.
0: And so... Where are the devices? What's the picture there?
2: Sure. So right now, what what we do know is that there is a um, a backlog of devices ordered. We have a bulk number that DOE was able to provide me as far as numbers go. So they say they ordered ten thousand devices for the summer students, and another twelve thousand devices were ordered for the fall students. And there is a third purchase order in the works. I understand. However, not all the devices are here, so, you know, they make the order request, but there's currently a backlog of computers, especially Chromebooks, because they're cheaper than iPads, across the nation because, you know, the whole country is going to distance learning this year. So naturally there's going to be a bunch of computers that are on demand. But if the DOE is targeting these numbers for the students that it anticipates need them all, but they're not all here, that means not all students, or um, who need a computer have one. So as the school year starts this year and kids are expected to, you know, log in to attend classes, what are they going to do? I don't know if anyone knows the answer to that question yet.
0: Now, there's also the issue of, um, you know, getting access to the Internet online.
2: Absolutely. Um, You can't just have a computer without it connecting anywhere so that's useless um, without you know for interactive materials or learning so it this is a this is a point that superintendent christina kishimoto has um, repeatedly said is not just a doe issue it's a statewide issue and she's right there is a lot of infrastructure gaps around the state especially rural areas and very remote places, just don't have that broadband infrastructure. But this is where something called a mobile hotspot comes in, and that's a small little device that you can connect to your computer with without having internet, or broadband internet access at home. So DOE has also ordered those hotspots. Um, how they're getting them out to the students who need them the most, again, we don't know. Um, I asked about distribution methodology. Um, I just didn't get a clear answer from them. But, um, and this is um, another issue that I think a lot of public private partnerships are coming in to fill the gap on. Um, The story today does uh, briefly discuss something that was happening out on Kauai with um, um, DOE schools out there partnering with um, foundations that were donating money to get more um, of these mobile hotspots to the students out there who didn't have broadband.
0: Yes, I was so happy to learn that they're ahead of the curve because we've been talking to lawmakers. I think Kalani English, Senator English, and uh, Mayor Kawakami, and the concern about those dead spots, right, the dead zones on Hana mm-hmm. area. So I'm really glad that they're they're they're, they're tackling that.
2: Yeah, yeah. A, um, Senate President Ron Kochi had um, um, initiated that effort out there on Kauai where he you know, sat down with the two um, incoming and outgoing complex area superintendents to find out exactly what data they needed, how they could get it, whether it could be done in seven days, which they did, um, and what they could do to sort of get that ball rolling. This happened back in June, so in between the last school year and this school year, so they really tried to um, get ahead of the curve as far as getting the data collection, finding out, finding out exactly what the needs were, and then reaching out to these foundations to get money. So I believe they raised about um, close to half a million dollars to provide about 750 students with a cellular wireless Wi-Fi device.
0: Okay, and then I, I understand that even this weekend there were lots of schools that were pivoting just with this whole idea of uh, remote learning. So everybody's mm-hmm. tr- uh, trying to, you know, get their arms around this as we try and keep everybody safe. Yeah,
2: totally. Uh, And we'll be watching as the school year unfolds how this this progresses. Okay,
0: hopefully we'll get some good numbers. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you for having me on. That was reporter Suvan Lee with today's Reality Check. Visit CivilBeat.org to read her stories covering education issues. This is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. <laughs> For today's Backyard Quiz, we travel to the garden aisle. kowei has been the backdrop for some larger-than-life movies. Jurassic Park, Avatar, Pirates of the Caribbean, but it's also home to one of the state's most restrictive building codes. Three of the four major Hawaiian islands all allow commercial buildings over 100 feet in height. The tallest on Hawaii Island is the Bayshore Tower at 135 feet. On Maui, the Whaler at 170 feet. And the first Hawaiian center on Oahu stretches to 430 feet above the street level. But on Kauai, commercial buildings are limited to 50 feet in height. Specific reasons for the restriction vary depending on who you ask. Some say it was to keep the small-town character of the island and prevent another Waikiki from being built there. Others say it's because residents were upset after the construction of the nearly 110-foot Kauai Surf Hotel in the 1960s. It is the island's tallest building and now part of the Kauai um, Marriott Resort. But since a county law was passed in the 70s, the limit on commercial building height has been playfully compared to the average height of a certain kind of tree. Do you know what it is? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
3: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from locations whose realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com.
0: It's been five months since Hawaii first went into lockdown as COVID 19 cases began to spread across the United States. After several months of low level virus, Hawaii is now experiencing a large spike in new cases on top of persistently high unemployment. HPR's Ryan Finnerty sat down with the governor last week to look back on the state's response to the virus and look ahead at the rest of his time in office.
4: You know, I'm proud of Hawaii's collective response. We can only be successful as a community together, if we all take personal responsibility and make the sacrifices necessary to keep our community safe. And, you know, up until the last three weeks or so, uh, we have been successful in doing that. You know, we did see beginning uh, Memorial Day weekend that people after sacrificing so much for so long started uh, relaxing a bit And clearly, we saw uh, more and more people feeling comfortable about interacting again as we got through the 4th of July weekend. Uh, And I do think this rapid uh, surge recently um, was a result of, I I think, many of us in the community just uh, letting our guard down, people uh, felt more comfortable, and, and those kinds of social interactions started to happen again and then obviously we saw the virus cases just um, take off and accelerate. And given that
5: acceleration and how quickly it occurred, uh, what does that portend for the planned or or at least uh, hopeful reopening of of the state economy and particularly the tourism industry? Um, Do you think we need to reevaluate that goal in light of how quickly the situation got out of hand with just local activity?
4: You know, Ryan, I've always stressed that we will constantly evaluate um, that uh, decision on Trans-Pacific travel. And so we are looking at the data, you know, the number of cases. It will be very important to see what happens uh, over the next few days and and probably the next week or two uh, to see whether, uh, you know, people can, uh re-embrace the personal sacrifices again and and stay separate and don't interact uh and um you know if the number of cases can come down uh back to uh you know the numbers that they were before uh then yes um you know we can look at uh, trans-pacific travel if it doesn't and and you know ryan i've always stressed it's about the health and safety of our community you know the increase in the number of cases in our hospitals uh, the increase uh, in the numbers in our uh, icu units um, right now is stressing our healthcare system it hasn't overwhelmed it yet you know we our, our health care system has uh, been true champions you know providing quality health care um, but i've spoken with uh, many of the leaders uh, and they are concerned and they need we need to see as a community the number of cases uh, come down and we need to get this virus uh, back under control uh, the way it was in early March, late April.
5: Uh, switching gears a little bit, Governor, the, the state is obviously dealing with a uh, pretty serious budget shortfall and fiscal pressures from the economic downturn uh, and the rise in unemployment. What's in the future for the next few months, Uh, specifically the
4: possibility of
5: pay cuts or furloughs for state workers? Is that still something that we could potentially see coming in future weeks or months?
4: Uh, We continue to monitor um, the Congress and uh, the administration, and we need to get additional federal aid, or else we will have to take um, a dramatic and um, decisive action uh, to deal with our budget crisis. Uh, And that will mean that we'll have to uh, evaluate and. Uh, review every program and service that the state offers Uh, that will mean that um, as a last resort we have to look at labor savings uh, in order to make our budget work.
5: What kinds of programs or assistance are you looking for? The CARES Act had some restrictions on how the money could be used that limited it in a lot of ways. What are you looking for specifically from the federal government?
4: You know, we definitely would need to uh, see additional funds in order to balance our budget. As I as I said, you know, we're seeing a revenue shortfall of about 2.3 billion dollars. Uh, so, um, you know, we would hope to see billion dollars or more in order to help us with our fiscal shortfall. Um, you know that. Uh, You know, right now we are looking at the municipal loan program uh, and uh, our financial plan includes uh, borrowing between 700 million to a billion dollars. That would help us alleviate the payroll deductions or labor savings that we would need to see to balance the budget that could help us delay any kind of action for a, a period of time. But you know the the challenge will be that as our revenues have fallen, and that's already happened, we are already seeing 25 percent less income coming into the state. That as we delay taking action, the fiscal impact gets larger and larger.
5: And so you need money to help meet pre-existing. Budget items. Is is that my understanding that right? Whereas the CARES Act was restricted to unexpected expenses, now right. the state needs money to meet budgeted items and, and right. obligations that predate the pandemic.
4: Yes, the CARES Act money explicitly prevented the state from using it to replace lost revenues and explicitly prevented the state for using it for any program, any expense or service that existed at the times that the CARES Act was funded. Uh, so it had to be new uh, expenditures. It had to be new requirements in response to the COVID-19 health emergency. So the new funds that we would seek, would allow us to replace lost revenues and help fund core existing programs that we know our community needs right now.
5: Obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty in that situation. But if that assistance either doesn't come at all or or comes in a form other than what you just described, um, at what point are you going to have to make decisions about borrowing additional funds or cutting spending?
4: We would uh, make the decision to borrow funds before the end of the year, uh, probably in November kind of time frame. You know, we continue to look at the state's cash flow and cash balances. We would need to implement labor savings if no additional federal funds come before the end of the year.
5: The last time we spoke, we were in a very different situation. It was before the pandemic in January. And you outlined a very ambitious agenda for the remainder of your term. And one of your main focuses was transitioning to a decarbonized economy, decarbonizing transportation and electricity generation in Hawaii. How has that been changed by this situation? And and what do you have in mind for the remainder of your term?
4: I think one thing that has become crystal clear uh, in this pandemic is we've seen what a tremendous impact our current daily activities have on the environment. We've seen a significant reduction in energy use. We've seen a, a significant reduction in fossil fuel usage as the number of flights have dropped dramatically you know the need for uh, jet fuel and other fossil fuels uh has um has shown us how how quickly our environment can improve um so i think it redoubles our commitment to accelerating decarbonization uh you know um kiko and the utilities have advanced um, uh, green energy investments you know this uh, pause in the demand for uh, using fossil fuels for electricity has allowed our utilities to accelerate their plans for green uh, energy so you know i'm excited about the opportunity it definitely would be different than what we had planned uh, a year ago. Um, but I think in terms of decarbonization, you'll see that acceleration now uh, in the next uh, year or so. All right,
5: Governor David Ige, thank you so much for your time today.
4: Thank you.
0: That was Governor David Ige, who spoke with HPR's Ryan infinity last week. You can find the story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. <laughs>
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Outdoor Living on Maui and opening soon on Oahu. With over 20 years in Hawaii, offering furnishings designed to hold up in island environments. Learn more at OutdoorLivingHawaii.com.
0: Think of all the ways that HPR enriches your life. It brings you views and perspectives from around the world, gives you something to talk about with friends, and sometimes makes you laugh or even cry. In a good way, of course. HPR and stations like ours are so important that there's actually a holiday dedicated to them. National Radio Day is August 20th. Help us celebrate with your gift of $10 a month. Just go online to hawaiipublicradio.org. This is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Today, astronomer Christopher Phillips and HPR's Dave Lawrence delve into new discoveries developing on the asteroid belt. Here's your Monday Stargazer.
6: Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny and very troubled planet. As always, we are thrilled to have the expertise and guidance of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and wouldn't you know, he joins us again right now. We've got him on the line. Hey Chris, welcome back. What do you have in store this week?
7: Hey Dave, it's good to be here. So this week's stargazers, Jupiter and Saturn, can be seen in the east after sunset with Mars rising also in the east at around 10 p.m. The moon is passing through its new moon phase this week, so conditions will be perfect for stargazing.
6: And we need to strap ourselves in because this is going to be somewhat of a dangerous voyage, I understand. We are headed into the asteroid belt.
7: Indeed, and if you remember, way back in 2015, we reported on the exciting images from Ceres, which were obtained by NASA's Dawn spacecraft. This marked a tremendous wave of science from the dwarf planet, which is located, as you said, in the asteroid belt. What was really exciting about the first images from Ceres is that they seem to indicate that there may be vast quantities of possibly frozen water beneath the surface. Well, after years of study, planetary scientists have announced that there is an entire ocean of liquid water on Ceres, and they are calling it one of the most profound discoveries in planetary science.
6: This sounds very exciting, Chris. Now, first explain, how does this stay liquid so far from the Sun?
7: Well, put simply, it's incredibly salty as we know salt water (laughs) has a lower freezing point than fresh water along with the salt there are also compounds called hydrates that modify heat transfer mechanisms within the planet all of these things help keep Ceres' ocean
6: liquid so Ceres is about as big as texas so how big is the ocean and what's the temperature you think of the water there
7: current estimates put it similar in size to the great salt lake in utah which is actually pretty big however Ceres Ocean is much deeper, with an estimated depth of 25 miles in places, much, much deeper than any ocean on Earth. And I imagine it's pretty cold.
6: (laughs) Man, you've got to believe there's a whole bunch of life just teeming in this ocean, huh?
7: Well, it's incredibly exciting, and we may soon find out. In light of this discovery, both NASA and the European Space Agency are now proposing missions to land on Ceres and find out exactly what's going on. Now, the cool thing is, Ceres is a lot closer than the moons of the outer planets, and so this mission is much more feasible than, say, a mission to the moon Europa around Jupiter. If this mission gets a thumbs up, it will depart Earth sometime towards the end of the decade.
6: And take how long, you think, to get there? It'll
7: probably take a
6: few years. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It is Christopher Phillips, another fun and fascinating uh, Stargazer Report. Thanks so much.
7: You are
3: welcome, Dave.
6: And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week, and you can catch Stargazer at HawaiiPublicRadio.org.
3: Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, an architectural firm participating in AIA Honolulu's virtual construction event, August 17th to the 28th, a benefit for Hawaii Food Bank. Ferraro-choy.com.
0: In today's Backyard Quiz, we were testing your knowledge of building codes on Kauai. While some of the natural sites on the island include the nearly uh, 4,000-foot-tall cliffs along the Nepali coastline and the 3,000-foot walls of the Waimea Canyon, you won't find many commercial buildings over 50 feet. That's because of a county code that was enacted in the 70s limiting their height. Some claim the code has enabled the island to avoid developers from erecting another stretch of high-rise hotels like in Waikiki, keeping the small-town feel of the Garden Isle. That's why the Kilohana Wing of the Kauai Marriott Resort, built in the 1960s, remains the tallest building on the island at 107 feet. While not as tall as some of the tallest buildings on the other major islands, over the past 40 years or so, it doesn't seem that many residents are complaining too much about the local law that says buildings on Kauai can't be taller than a coconut palm tree. That's the answer to today's backyard quiz, and we had lots of callers, but congratulations to Alice Tucker from Honolulu. You had the fastest fingers. You got it right. If you have an idea for a quiz, uh, send it to TalkBack at HawaiiPublicRadio.org.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Niko's Kailua Restaurant and Bar near Aikahi Shopping Center with limited indoor and outdoor seating for dine-in and take-out with curbside pickup. Open daily, 1030 to 8, nicoskailua.com.
5: For the first time in modern U.S. history, the Democratic and Republican national conventions will be mostly virtual. Both candidates will accept their party's nominations without the customary spectacle. What does a political convention sound like when so few people can attend? Join us starting Monday, August 17th for live special coverage from NPR News.
8: Coverage begins this afternoon at 3.
0: you may not be aware of the tremendous influence Hawaii music had on the world. Well, a new exhibit at the Bishop Museum aims to spread the word and the sense of pride about the humble roots of the ukulele and the steel guitar. We talked to Luthier and president of the Kialakai Center for Pacific Strings, Kylan Reese, and Bishop Museum historian DeSoto Brown about cur- co-curating this exhibit.
8: This exhibition is a, a very historic collection of stringed instruments. And it traces the the lineage of these designs of these guitars uh, all the way around the world and back to the Kingdom period in Hawaii when a generation of royal Hawaiian troubadours rode this incredible swell, musical swell, that rose out of the Hawaiian kingdom to every far corner of the globe, playing their guitars, their ukuleles, their mandolins, banjos, violins. And we've gathered this collection of instruments, and it's very exciting.
0: I did see some of the instruments that you had at the concert last year, and it was just stunning. Were you able to include all of those in this display?
8: Uh, This exhibition picks up where that Sovereign String concert uh, left off in many ways and the the guitar that the Martin guitar company built for makia Kalakai in 1915 we now have an official one of a kind reproduction made by the Martin guitar company and that is that is featured in this exhibition side by side with its descendant the dreadnought guitar of Johnny Cash That's which awesome. is the same model that Gabby Pahinui played Raymond Connie, all these amazing legendary slack key musicians were part of that same that same generation who felt these guitars did more than any other instrument for them.
0: And DeSoto Brown, jump in here because you know what does it mean to have this exhibit, you know, come together like this. Well,
9: the thing for me personally was Kayman and I were co curators of this exhibit and I already knew a lot about the musical history and the musical roots that we enjoy here in Hawaiian culture. But there was a great deal more that I learned from talking to Kylan. And what really put it all together for me was to see the connections that I didn't really know about, that I didn't really know the facts about. So that we go from the steel guitar, the invention of the acoustic steel guitar here in Hawaii by Joseph K. in the late 1800s, and who was a student at the Kamehameha School for Boys, which was located on the grounds of Bishop Museum at the time, which is an amazing coincidence and a wonderful connection. And then that acoustic steel guitar becoming tremendously popular in the United States and internationally, then the acoustic steel guitar becoming an electrified instrument in the late 1920s, which then is the direct lineage to the invention of the electric guitar and from the electric guitar by the 1950s we see the rise of rock and roll so there is a really strong musical connection and innovation that comes that literally starts here that turns into rock and roll and you would never have known that i mean i didn't really know that 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 direct connection was there until kylan really opened my eyes to it. So that is part of the thing that we hope people get from this exhibit is that it isn't just purely something that happened here in Hawaii. It is something that affected the whole world, but it started here.
0: So the influence you know, was incredible.
8: You know, the, and and the title of this exhibition, Kaulapiko, the source of strings, is a very literal description of the Bishop Museum's and earlier Kamehameha Schools' role in the story. The first electric guitar ever made was a Hawaiian lap steel guitar. Um, that's a that's a very significant part of modern music history that oftentimes gets overlooked.
0: And you have King Kalakaua's guitar there as part of this exhibit.
8: That's right. And as many people know, King Kalakaua was the first sovereign to circumnavigate the entire globe in 1881. On this tour, he was meeting inventors, designers, visionaries. And while in Paris, I believe he met a, a famous luthier there and commissioned this guitar, which was arrived to him in 1886 to coincide with uh, the Jubilee celebra- celebration at the Iolani Palace. And this guitar is a smaller parlor sized guitar. Um, and it's, it's inlaid the entire top with abalone shell in a, a design of a, a peacock, and it's incredibly ornate. Um, and it's right across the, the case from an ukulele that was owned by Ellen Pendergast, the composer of Kalananapua, which she composed for the Royal Hawaiian Band in 1892-93, and that ukulele has similar very ornate, beautiful shell inlay. So this exhibition, yeah, it's pretty stunning. The instruments in
9: the exhibit come from a variety of sources. So there are instruments that are part of the Bishop Museum collection, but we also were able to borrow instruments like the Kalakala guitar from Iolani Palace, for example. So Kylan really was the person who knew the we knew where these other instruments were. he was the connection, He was the person who got all of that together. So this is a gathering of instruments that you're not you couldn't see otherwise because they're from a lot of different sources.
8: The way I described it in our opening celebration, uh, the speech was that just like you can't expect one instrument to tell the full story of, of any style of music, um, it takes you know the ukulele, the, the guitar, the steel guitar, the upright bass, all coming together to tell the story. So, too, this exhibition required this entire community to come together. And we want to thank all of our lenders who have really, in many ways, parted with a family member uh, for a, pretty much a year to, let, to make this exhibition possible. So the other theme really strong in this exhibition is that these instruments are the bonds between generations um, of families, uh, practitioners of traditions, they're the links that transcend time itself and their voice is a common denominator. You know, the, the ukulele of Baina Mosman who of course learned from Lily vocalani herself, uh, the guitar of David, Ka- uh, Kawananakoa, which was owned by his father, um, Gabby Pahinui's Martin guitar, the Rogers family, guitars are in this exhibition. It's incredible, yeah. Well, I was talking to yeah. Paula
0: Kana over at Iolani uh, Palace, and she had mentioned that the king played banjo, which I didn't know. And, you know, so it's just really a cool history.
9: He was very international. He was, was very sophisticated in his in his abilities and his tastes. And he was not, you know, the Hawaiian Islands were really, and this is something else that Kylan really opened my eyes to, the Hawaiian Islands were not far off in the distance, removed from the rest of the world. We were and still are a crossroads, and we were where a lot of influences came together and a lot of different cultures came together to produce this unique type of music, which is Hawaiian music. And the, the people who play it are from all different cultures now all over the world because it came together here and it spread from here everywhere else.
0: You mentioned Paris, and I remembered doing a story last year uh, with uh, a young musician who played an ukulele, and he had a luthier a luthier friend who made this ukulele with a gypsy jazz d-hole. Oh, yeah. And it was just really remarkable to see the influence of the ukulele and the ukulele cafes that they have in Paris that are so popular today.
8: The ukulele is such a symbol of uh, this vision of music that was just profoundly uh, evident in the Hawaiian kingdom. This, co- this concept of, of music as a force that can elevate your mind, your spirit, your intellect, your vocational capabilities, um, that's a concept that the Hawaiian kingdom really put to use for their most disadvantaged young people. The uh, Boys' Reform School, which uh, predates Kamehameha Schools by about 30 years, was where Henry Berger was teaching these young, orphaned, convicted, abandoned children the musical skills. And so it was that generation who introduced the ukulele, the Hawaiian steel guitar, and the Hawaiian string ensemble style, as De Soto said, to every corner of the globe. And that's why today in Switzerland, South Africa, China, Japan, Canada, people see an ukulele, and they smile and they say, this is something that I can do. This is something I can make music a part of my life with.
0: So I'm sure you have different favorite instruments in this exhibit. What's yours, (laughs) Kylie?
8: My favorite, Well, I I have to say that uh, I'm a little partial to the guitar that I worked with the Martin Guitar Company to build the reproduction of Makia Kalakai's guitar. Makia's uh, we named our nonprofit in honor of his legacy and his contributions to the world of music. And as someone who's played bluegrass my entire life, facing the story of this guitar has been me understanding my own genealogy as a contemporary, you know, American musician. So that would be my vote. DeSoto, what's yours? To me, because I'm not a musician, I have to I have to admit this. I can't
9: read music, I can't play any instruments, but I certainly enjoy listening to them. The tricone metal bodied acoustic steel guitar is the most striking looking because yeah. it's certainly shaped like a regular guitar, but it has this shiny metal surface with this patterns on the face of it that are to um, amplify the sound to come out of it. And I don't know the technique and I can't
8: play it, but it just looks really wonderful. And that's an incredible... That instrument in this exhibition is one of the guitars that was owned by Alistair Makelua, who was also... Um, mentored by Queen Liliuokalani and and taught thousands of people, I think, to play Hawaiian black key music. It's interesting, Soto mentioned the the metal body of that guitar. It's engraved, nickel-plated brass, and the guitar that is the zenith of the electric guitar design for many people, the Fender Stratocaster, we also have one of those in the exhibition that is owned by the Tavares family, Descendants of Freddie Tavares, who had a hand with Leo Fender of inventing that guitar design in the late 1940s.
9: Yeah, so you see all the a connections. lot of full circles.
8: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and the and the instruments themselves
9: are treasured artifacts that, as we know, get passed down, as Kylan said, from to descendants or to other musicians who not only treasure them, but then also continue to play them. So they, they're still producing music now, way long after they were first built.
8: We have to mention um, Ledward Kaapana's auntie's guitar, that he grew up in Kalapana playing on the Big Island, and then he used for all of his early Julio Hanna records records uh, in this exhibition. And that guitar, I mean, if that guitar could talk.
0: So this exhibit coincides with the 100th year anniversary of the return and the appointment of the first bandmaster, right, of the Royal Hawaiian Band.
8: That's right. That's right. So Makia Kalakai grew up, sent sent to the boys' reform school at age 12, went on to become a very brilliant composer, collaborated with Lili Okalani and Kalakaua, and went on to join in, in the Royal Hawaiian Band uh, when they quit in protest of the overthrow in 1893, he went on a tour of the continental United States, spreading the music and message of uh, the Hawaiian kingdom. And he would stay on the road for nearly 15 years, traveling Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, Juarez, Mexico, Portland, and then on to Paris at the close of uh, World War One. And he was asked to come back in 1922, in the quote of the newspapers at the time, to save Hawaiian music from this Kind of outside influence of jazz that was happening, <laughs> and so he came back. And the first thing he does, he goes back to teaching at that same reform school, which at that at that point he had moved to the North Shore, the Waile'e Boys Reform School, and he, you know, spawned a whole next many generations of musicians like Lena Machado, Alvin kaleolani Isaacs. So all these musicians got their start under his mentorship. So that's a legacy of really. This vision of music education is something that can transform disadvantaged young people's lives.
0: So this exhibit is not to be missed.
8: Correct. That's
9: what uh, we certainly hope people don't miss
8: it. It's also incredible, too, this exhibit overlaps with the surfing exhibition. We have Duke Kahanamoku's ukulele and his surfboard at the Bishop Museum right now on display. That's incredible.
0: Okay, one-two punch. Yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Kylin, when we last chatted, you were doing the um, concert, the Night of Sovereign Strings, and right. we talked about a big concert, hopefully at you know the the NBC Concert Hall. But in these COVID times, obviously we can't do that right now.
8: Well, and you know that that concert series was such a blessing. I was really fortunate to know so many brilliant and talented virtuoso String players and, and vocalists. I called um, Uncle Aaron Mahi, of course, Puka Asing, Rayate Ahelm, Jeff Peterson, Ian O'Sullivan. I called, you know, all the guys and gals who are carrying on this tradition. And I said, hey, what if we bring this music to life? And we were set to go to Kauai. And then, of course, COVID hit and everything has, has gone on hold, but definitely not over, just on hold.
0: All right, that was Bishop Museum historian DeSoto Brown and Luthier Kylan Reese, who co curated the new exhibit called Calopico The Source of Strings. It just opened and will run through January twenty twenty one. For links, head to our website and take a listen to some of the music behind the story. that's it for today. Tomorrow we hear about how the COVID shutdown earlier this year has impacted construction at the Daniel K. Inouye Solar Telescope on Maui. The opening could be pushed back to next year. Do you have a story to share with us? Call our talk back line at 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page and remember all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.